Hello everyone and welcome to the July 26th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarin and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. A new WCAB panel decision clarifies the use of a COLA in death benefits cases. The case is Christopher Peckham deceased versus Resolution Law Corporation and Republic Indemnity Company of America. The wife of the decedent tried to convince the judge that earnings should be calculated based upon expectations of future raises after the death of her husband. She testified that her husband's earnings had increased at an annual rate of 30.9% since 2004. She also said her husband was valued by his employer and had a bright future with the firm. After his death, his employer hired consultants to replace him and paid them between $120 and $140 an hour. Based upon this testimony, she wanted the judge to award benefits for her daughter at a higher earnings than what he made just before his death. She also argued that the new COLA law should require the employer to adjust the death benefits according to increases in the state average weekly wage no matter what his earnings were. The judge did not agree with either argument. He did not find her evidence that the decedent's earnings would have increased after his death to be persuasive. He also found that the new COLA law did not require increases in his earnings. Instead, it only raised the maximum benefit rate according to inflationary increases. He therefore awarded her daughter benefits at either two-thirds of the actual earnings on the date of death or the maximum TD rate as adjusted by increases in the state average weekly wage, whichever is lower. She petitioned for reconsideration. The WCAB in a panel decision sustained the award and said that applicants' argument about how the COLA worked was predicated upon an overly expansive reading of Labor Code Section 4453A10. The COLA for death benefits does not mandate higher earnings beyond that which is determined by the calculation of average weekly earnings, which still requires evidence of actual earnings or earning capacity. Accordingly, they affirmed the WCGA's determination and denied applicants' petition for reconsideration. Some appellate cases are heating up and others are cooling down this July. In March, the California Supreme Court agreed to review controversial issues pertaining to the calculation of the cost of living adjustments made to comp benefits for life pension and total disability. They granted a petition for hearing in the case of Duncan versus WCAB, recently decided by the 6th District Court of Appeal. Amendments to the Labor Code that took effect in 2004 require that benefits for life pensions or total disability awards be adjusted for cost of living increases. There's been a dispute in implementing this new law. It was unclear if the COLA is to be calculated starting on the date of injury or on the permanent and stationary date or even later when the first life pension payment begins. 
The Court of Appeal, in the published opinion of John Duncan versus WCAB, ruled that the COLA should be calculated starting on January 1, 2004, regardless of the date of injury. This is the worst of all outcomes for employers since this is the earliest of all possible dates. Employers are hoping for a more favorable result from the Supreme Court. The case is heating up this week as amicus or friend of the court briefs are being filed by industry stakeholders. The State Compensation Insurance Fund, the California Chamber of Commerce, and the California Workers' Compensation Institute have been granted the right to file amicus briefs opposing the claimant. The California Applicants' Attorneys Association and the California Correctional Peace Officers Association have been granted the right to file briefs as amicus on behalf of the injured worker. The next step will be oral argument, which has not yet been calendared. Another significant appellate case this year is Hertz versus WCAB Aguilar. The California Supreme Court agreed in March 2009 to review the sixth DCA published opinion in that case. In a surprise development in May, the Supreme Court decided not to intervene in the case after all, and they dismissed the petition for hearing. The published Sixth District Court of Appeal decision is now authoritative law quite favorable to the employer. Since the Supreme Court let this decision stand, the original published Court of Appeal decision provides significant clarification of how the Supreme Court LaBeouf case applies under the new apportionment rules of SB 899. As this case cools down, the employer and several defense-related amicus, including the California Chamber of Commerce, Zenith Insurance Company, and the County of Los Angeles, petitioned the Supreme Court to certify the Aguilar case for publication. The trip through the High Court ended on July 21, when the request for publication order was denied. Thus. The Duncan case now remains one of the most important unresolved cases of the year. When the Supreme Court finally decides the case, the industry will have some clarity on ambiguous language that implements a COLA for life pension and total disability cases. And now our fraud report. Federal authorities said that they had arrested dozens of suspects in five states on charges of defrauding Medicare of a total of $251 million. Several doctors and nurses were among those arrested in Miami, New York, Detroit, Houston, and Louisiana. They are accused of billing Medicare for unnecessary equipment, physical therapy, and HIV treatments that patients typically never received. 94 suspects were indicted in all. More than 360 agents participated in raids, which were announced by Attorney General Eric Holder and Kathleen Sebelius, the Secretary of Health and Human Services. Holder claims that with these arrests, would-be criminals are on notice that healthcare fraud is no longer a safe bet. Cleaning up an estimated $60 billion to $90 billion a year in Medicare fraud will be an important part of paying for the Obama overhaul of the health care system. 
Around the country, the fraud has evolved far beyond simple scams by clinic owners. Officials say the schemes today involve a sophisticated network of doctors, clinic owners, patients, and patient recruiters. Violent criminals and mobsters are also tapping into the scams, seeing Medicare fraud as more lucrative than dealing drugs with less severe criminal penalties. The Los Angeles Times is reporting that the prosecutor in the murder case against a woman accused of killing an aspiring model in Santa Monica said that Munir Ueda, MD, is a subject of interest in the investigation and he now has fled the country. Those allegations came at a hearing in which bail for the accused woman, Kelly Sue Park, was increased from $1 million to $3.5 million after prosecutors persuaded the judge that she was a flight risk. Park is accused in the 2008 beating and strangling death of Juliana Redding, a striking 21-year-old Arizona native who had come to Los Angeles to study and pursue work as an actress and model. Redding's battered body was discovered in her apartment after she failed to return phone calls from her family. She had been strangled so fiercely that a bone in her throat was crushed. The prosecutors said that the DNA extracted from blood and other bodily material found on Redding's body and in the apartment was matched to Park's genetic profile. He went on to accuse Park of a failed plot to destroy evidence of her involvement by blowing up the apartment. The prosecutor sought to further establish Park's close ties to Dr. Munir Ueda, a QME and Marina Del Rey physician. Ueda, according to Prosecutor Jackson, was the only common denominator linking Park to Redding. He alleges that Ueda dated Redding briefly and had employed Park paying her in a vaguely defined capacity. Jackson told the court that Ueda bragged to people that he had a female James Bond that he could rely on to take care of business. Ueda's attorney, Henry Fenton, acknowledged that Park worked for Ueda but refuted the allegations against his client. Ueda is the majority owner of Frontline Medical Associates. He is litigating millions of dollars in lien claims for treatment he claims to have provided to injured workers. And in regulatory news, President Obama signed a sweeping overhaul of the financial regulatory system. The 2,300-page bill gives regulators broad authority to rein in banks, limit risk-taking by financial firms, and supervise previously unregulated trading. It also has regulatory language that applies to the insurance industry. Title V, the insurance title of the bill, includes surplus lines and reinsurance reform. It creates a Federal Insurance Office, or FIO, which would serve as a non-regulatory insurance informational office at the federal level. The office would also play a role in representing U.S. interests with international insurance agreements. The new law does modernize the state-based regulatory system with the inclusion of the Non-Admitted and Reinsurance Reform Act, 
a provision strongly supported by the property casualty insurance industry. This section will streamline the regulation of surplus lines by making the insured's home state the sole regulator in surplus lines transactions. Those changes would speed up and ease access to the surplus lines market by consumers and reduce administrative compliance issues. The newly created Federal Insurance Office goes into effect immediately. The office is restricted primarily to monitoring the insurance industry and advising Congress and federal agencies on insurance issues. However, federal regulators will have vast discretion over how this oversight is executed. An amendment to the Air Ambulance Service Fees section in the official medical fee schedule has now been finalized. The amended regulation adds language that exempts air carriers as defined in the Federal Airline Deregulation Act of 1978 from the application of the fee schedule. Prior to the adoption of the OMFS, Congress had adopted the Airline Deregulation Act of 1978 which prohibited states from adopting or enforcing regulations which affected rates charged by air carriers. Several air ambulance providers sued various workers' compensation payers in California, asserting that these OMFS provisions were preempted by the Federal Airline Deregulation Act. California Shock Trauma Air Rescue, also known as CalSTAR, an air ambulance provider based in Northern California is one of the carriers who com commenced federal court litigation. Some plaintiffs also threatened to sue the Division of Workers' Compensation and Department of Industrial Relations to stop them from enforcing the OMFS. This modification to the OMFS is expected to resolve this dispute with the DWC. It is also expected that costs for air ambulance services will increase as a result of this regulatory change. One witness at the public hearing provided a case example from San Bernardino County, where CalSTAR charged over $33,000 above and beyond the OMFS. In another example from the Oakland area, the charges were $20,000 higher than the OMFS for a transport that was approximately 12 miles. A group of 51 California insurance carriers and employers and other witnesses at the public hearing contend that the DWC does not have authority to declare the OMFS as it pertains to air carriers to be unconstitutional. The logic is that the labor code mandates fee schedules and that the air ambulance exemption in this regulation is in effect a declaration by the DWC that the labor code mandate violates the U.S. Constitution Supremacy Clause. Article 3, Section 3.5 of the California Constitution provides that an administrative agency does not have the power to declare a statute unconstitutional or refuse to enforce a statute on the basis of it being unconstitutional unless an appellate court has made a determination that the statute is unconstitutional. 
This issue was vigorously argued during the April public hearings on this regulatory amendment, and it appears that the DWC was not impressed. The new regulation is now in effect, and the dispute is now one for the courts to decide. And in financial news, Markel Corporation has agreed to purchase Aspen Holdings, which is headquartered in Omaha, Nebraska. Aspen is a privately held insurance group that provides workers' compensation insurance and related services principally to small businesses in 31 states. Aspen operates primarily through First Comp Insurance Company. Aspen's subsidiaries collectively underwrite more than $300 million of gross written premium annually. They operate through a network of over 9,000 retail agents and have more than 500 employees based in Nebraska, Rhode Island, Nevada, California, and Florida. Following the acquisition, Aspen will continue to operate as a separate business unit with Aspen's current chief executive officer as president. Markel Corporation markets and underwrites specialty insurance products and programs to a variety of niche markets. And in other news, the California Applicant Attorneys Association, in their ongoing political battle to reverse the effects of SB 899, released a chart on their website showing that Governor Schwarzenegger's workers' compensation changes resulted in $25 billion in insurance carrier profits between 2004 and 2008. CA President Adam Domchik points out that while Governor Schwarzenegger has called his workers' compensation law a great success, he asked the question, success for whom? The changes have been extremely profitable for insurance companies, he claims, but not for those injured on the job. The chart was compiled using insurance industry figures from the Workers' Compensation Insurance Rating Bureau. They claim that insurance carrier profits skyrocketed under Schwarzenegger's law. Carr argues that there have been winners and losers under the administrative changes. Insurance companies have won while working Californias have lost, they claim. And now in medical news, a new study claims that most people who have a common knee ligament injury fare just as well with intense physical therapy as they do with surgery. Researchers said that focusing on rehabilitation first can prevent more than half of operations done to repair a tear in the anterior, anterior cruciate ligament, or ACL. The ACL lies beneath the kneecap and attaches the thigh bone to the shin bone. Such tears are the most common type of knee ligament injury often affecting athletes. About 200,000 ACL reconstructions are done in the United States each year at a cost of billions of dollars. The study, which appears in the New England Journal of Medicine, claims that treatment of an acute ACL injury should start with structured rehabilitation rather than early ACL reconstruction. The team looked at 121 people aged 18 to 35, none of them professional athletes. About half received surgery. 
The others were given rehabilitation in hopes of delaying the operation. After two years, people assigned to the surgery group were not doing better than those who got physical therapy as a first option. That's all our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPod, or iPad by searching for WorkComp Academy in the iTunes Store. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us. Please check our website again next week for more news.